Welcome to Co-Pilots, the podcast where we watch not just the first episode of a show, but also the second. Some shows just don't have the best pilot episode, and giving it a second chance might just sway your mind. Here, we take that chance for you, and let you know our opinion on if a show deserves more than, hmm, one shot. I'm Justice, alongside me is my co-pilot Josh. Now, let's get ready for takeoff. Your in-flight entertainment this week will be Archive 81. Netflix's Archive 81. Archive 81 is a horror show. Horror suspense spoiler. By Netflix. Debuted this year, 2022. I think. Well, not this month. This is now February. Welcome to the 222 co pilots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But came out in January this year. I think it's eight episode first season. Oh, uh, that sounds right. Yeah. And honestly, going into it, I knew basically nothing. I had seen like 15 second stinger trailers on like yep. YouTube and like Twitch. I didn't see that. I saw, hey, look, you are hovering above the show on Netflix. Yeah. Here's a clip from it. So I saw a guy talk to another guy through a fence. Yep. We still haven't seen that part. Yeah. There, there was no context for it. But it is based off a podcast series, which apparently has three seasons mm-hmm. and two Podcasts shows. come in seasons? Yeah. What uh, season are we on? Technically, season two. We don't break our show into seasons, so seasons would just be years of activity. We're in the second year. Well, wouldn't, they, wouldn't it be soon? airing seasons for when things air, which normally you have three seasons? You have a spring, a summer, and a fall season? Not if we're not putting breaks in between them. Mmm... Podcasts typically just call a year a season unless you're... Nah, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. I like to imagine this is season four. Oh, we're just doing anime-style seasons now? Summer yep. and winter? Summer, winter, fall. There's summer, winter, fall in anime? In that case, this is season six, buddy. Five? Six. We start with spring, fall, winter. Spring. You don't get a spring. Oh. Some, so, summer, fall, winter. Now, there's spring anime, too. Like, it's weird. It depends on what you're asking. It's because some shows have double seasons. Some shows don't have double seasons. It's all stupid. Anyways, not talking about anime this time, or any time ever again. We're no longer an anime podcast. We were never an anime podcast. We'll talk about anime at some point in the future. Anyways, episode one's entitled Mystery Signals. And again, this is based off a podcast. You could find the podcast entitled Archive 81 anywhere you listen to podcasts. Anywhere you can find Copilot's Review, you can find Archive 81. Except on our website. Can't find it there. Can't find Archive 81 on our website. Oh, no, no. I was saying you can't find our podcast there, but you can find Archive 81. This just in. Copilotsreview.simpleclass.com is now a fan site for Archive 81. All Copilot's content has been removed and been replaced by Archive 81 content. (laughs) I wish, but no. It's 6 a.m. We just spent five hours watching two hours of television. Uh, dance shows lots of notes so we open with a grainy videotape footage and a woman panically saying she's not here they took her the woman recording herself is looking for a woman named jess the video ends with the woman asking the viewer to find her and help her we then hear a man's voice saying you're going to be fine before she starts screaming again yeah she screams get off me and we have our opening which is a very disjointed series of images with disjointed music Tense, atmospheric music. We have a lot of things, like we see several screens, we see some analog slash digital visuals, by which I mean like, hey, look, it's the late 90s, early 2000s, I'm gonna put the CD in my PlayStation. Hey, look at all those weird shapes it makes. God, I miss when PlayStations could play CDs. Right. In case you didn't know, your PS4, and I guess probably PS5, can't play CDs. Hope that makes you feel better about your new technology. So after then our opening... you have Spotify. Yeah. So after our opening... Before we dive into the, the after opening part, I want to ask something. We both watched the trailer before we watched the show. Yeah. Based on the trailer... How much of the horror of this do you think comes from supernatural elements? Mm. The trailer, uh, the, the, trailer, I've got no clue. the trailer feels very horror, like supernatural stuff going on, like 
I didn't really get the vibe from it. Mm, okay. It's an interesting conundrum with this show that I have. We'll get deeper into it, though. So, you were saying after the opening? Starting from a high angle and zooming into the bustling streets of New York City, we hear a man yelling at people in general. Tapes. Five bucks for a tape. One dollar for cassette tapes. Oh, yeah. One dollar for cassette tapes, and then later he sells tapes for five bucks. Yeah. Well, VHS tapes are actually ten dollars. He's just willing to cut our main character a deal for five dollars. Yes. Also, we know it's New York because we see the Flatiron building. Is that the name of it? Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yep. If you don't know what the Flatiron building is, you know what the Flatiron building is. At least if you're American. I don't know how like iconic it would be outside of America. Mm-hmm. Anyways. So, our main character, who we don't have the name for yet, walks with this guy. Apparently, he they seem to have a working relationship. The guy apparently consistently buys tapes from him because they're just kind of shooting this shit. The guy's just like, you should really get a VCR so you at least know what you're selling. Yeah, because last time you sold me 15 hours of, like, T-Ball. Yeah, and the guy's like, yeah, but the time before that, I sold you Phantasmagoria. The uncut version, version. that was only aired once on television yeah. and it was never released otherwise. And he's like, yeah, well, I can't be paying $10 for a VHS if it's T-Ball. Yeah, and then... So they're just kind of shooting the shit like that. And then the guy selling the tapes mentions, hey, I saw Jill earlier. You guys are still, you know, like copacetic. You guys get along still or whatever. Like if you want to talk to her, I think you could probably catch up to her. Yeah, she was just buying some books I got for my last buy. Because this guy buys expired storage lockers. Assumedly, we don't. He actually says. Oh, it. does he? Yeah. He buys expired storage lockers and then resells the contents on the street in New York. I assume he has to have some type of license for that, though. Eh. Street vendors that need licenses, especially because of how publicly he's doing it, there's no way. Eh. Anyways, main character who we still don't have the name for takes the subway and then goes into a store that sells other film accoutrement. In this case, 1940s Flash Gordon's originals. Yeah, and also this guy has two things of 60mm film coming in. He doesn't make it clear whether or not there's anything on the film or if it's just rolls of 16 millimeter film well either one would be useful because we find out that our main character works for a museum as a restorationist yes he he in fact tells this guy i'll have the museum give you a call yeah because if it's unused 16 millimeter he can use it to like intersplice Mm -hmm. with ruined footage to try to restore it or if it's already got stuff on it they might want it it depends on what it is so then we see our guy walking down the street and he goes into a building that's there's a glass front glass doors and across the glass it says Museum of the Moving Image. Right before this, though, we do, we had a scene where we get his name, and that's him drinking coffee in a park, and we see a package he has that says Daniel on it. Now, the package is actually after this, because oh. the first thing we get is the voicemail from Evie Crest that says, Dan, that a package should have arrived today, and then that's the package we, sh- we see. He had the package before he got back into the museum. Pretty certain we see the package after the call. Because he picked it up from the place that... He definitely did not pick it up from the place of that guy, because it is the package from Evie Crest. You're right. Actually, I have no idea where, where that package came from, but he definitely had it when he was drinking coffee, because it has his name on it before we ever see the museum. I could be wrong. You're wrong. Okay, I'm wrong. Because he's walking down the street with his earbuds in, and then he's not. He's standing at a park just drinking a cup of coffee, and then he's immediately walking in front of the museum. Okay. We don't have good transition shots in the walking. It's just cut here and there. It's a very... That's actually a very... It's solid. a Establishing the thing that's a giant solid city. Point about this entire show: transition cuts are not a thing. In fact, one could argue that this show uses smash cuts way too liberally. Yeah, but it also has other type of cuts, and because it's trying to keep suspense going, it works well, and it's meant to be unsettling, and it uses its music well for and that. It's meant to keep the viewer off their like. Yeah, it's meant to be off kilter. It uses Dutch angles at points. It keeps the music to go with the cut with the scene transitions. What we're saying is, The Witcher could have done it better. Yeah. I know I said I'd give it another chance when we talked to Kants. I just haven't, and I don't think I ever will. Sorry, Kants. 
Like, I intend to. I just haven't gotten around to it. I just haven't been watching anything recently lately. Anyways, voicemail from Evie Crest in a package. Mm-hmm. He starts restoring old footage from the package, and then the movie he's restoring starts. Uh, oh, yeah. The voicemail just says that the contents of the package are in terrible condition, mm-hmm. and they just want to know if he can do anything to restore them. Yeah. So, so he starts to restore it, and we see he gets it done, the movie's playing, and it's a bunch of people in masks. Performing a satanic ritual. Assumably satanic. I mean, it's definitely stylized as, like, 1950s and 60s, 70s satanic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, definitely. And there's a woman that he works with. We never get her name in these. I don't know if she's like an assistant, a co-worker, a secretary. No idea. A tour guide at the museum, another restorationist. But she's just watching him watch it over his shoulder. And she asks what it is. And he's like, oh, it's this old film called The Circle by William Crest. It's a horror anthology. Kind of like Twilight Zone before Twilight Zone. But it was never released because William Crest died and it just got pulled and it never went anywhere. Yeah. And they're talking about early William Crest had a bunch of shit to do with the Robinson Crusoe stuff. Mm-hmm. Don't know if he was an actual person. Don't care to look it up. Mm. I did not look it up. Yeah, you're right. And she suggests, well, maybe if the museum wants it, you'll get to write the companion piece for it for the museum. So the little article on a plaque that's next to whatever you're watching or and, looking at in a museum generally. And he says that it was really more just like a favor to Evie because he was trying to like put something together for her so she could better like connect with her father. Yeah. And then the woman's like, oh, uh, also there's this because this entire time she's been like holding a clipboard with stuff and she hands him a small package. He opens it, pulls out a letter and it's from... Karen. Um, a woman even, named woman Karen. even says it's from Karen. Yeah. And, and it, it just says... Uh, yeah, the letter asks him to restore the contents of the envelope by tomorrow and digitize it. Do not make copies. It is highly confidential. Yes. Also, Karen seems to just be his direct boss. Yeah. So we see Dan start to restore this, and it's like a melted tape. It is melted. Yeah. Like, took, took a torch... Blasted it, melted. Yeah. So he cracks it open and the tape still looks fine. So he's restoring that. It kind of looks like a cassette tape. It's actually an old camcorder tape. Yeah, that you they, then insert into a larger VHS cassette and then run. They specifically mention what type of tape it is later, but... I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not an old tape guy, so who knows. But the tape is an old camcorder tape, mm-hmm. and it features Melody Pendris, a doctoral candidate from NYU. She's a doctoral candidate for sociocultural anthropology. She's the same woman from the brief clip at the beginning of the show before the intro. Mm-hmm. And she is making a research paper that is focusing on the community at the Visser apartment complex in the East Village, adapting to cultural shifts at the end of the 20th century. It's not a research paper. It's a research project. It's a research project for her doctoral thesis, yes. Because it's it's a film project. It's yeah, yeah. A, it's a verbal history of, of yeah, the yeah. Building. I assume for her thesis, she's probably going to also have to do a write-up to go along with the project, so. Yeah, and she hasn't started the project yet. She hasn't even left for the visor building where she's yeah. going to be living. She's just at her current apartment. With her friend, whose name we do not get. Her best friend, yeah. And her friend hassles her about it and is like, oh, you're just leaving me, da 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 And then Melody says, don't worry, I'll be back soon. And her friend goes, yeah, Amelia Earhart said the same thing, which is obviously not foreshadowing in the, in yeah. the slightest, right? Not, not in the least. So then we cut to Dan, who seems intrigued by this for some reason. Probably because he works for a museum of motion film history film motion history and this has nothing to do with it in the slightest yeah 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 and he rewinds back and just like stares at melody's face and then he searches on google for the visser apartment complex and here because if you've listened to some of our other stuff you realize i like to pause things when they put text on the screen well i do too because sometimes they actually like put more lore into the world through like screenshot yeah. through, through stuff on the screen and sometimes they just i don't know steal a script from a drama show and like plug <laughs> that in yeah so 
Here we see four searches when he searches for the Visser apartment complex on Google. The first one is for a welding company in Pennsylvania. The Visor Welding Company, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. We see the second result, which is labeled PDF short story, Visser apartment, Griffinpedia. And it mentions... A woman named Melody Pindris, who was born on April 17, 1924, and died in an assisted living facility on December 17, 2013. This is labeled as a short story... As you said. Yeah, which would have assumedly, if this was for some reason actually our person, put her in her 70s, roughly, yeah. in this video, assuming she did it in the 90s. 80, 80 11, Oh, she, in the 90s, she would have been 70. So yes. Yeah, yeah. Or 60, in, in her late 60s. Now, because it does say it's a short story, it's unclear whether or not the person that it's listing here was someone in the story, or if they were theoretically the author of the story. Actually, Melody Pendris would have been 69 during the events of her tape if this was the same Melody Pendris. Yeah, yeah, because so, we get the year that it takes place later. So, 69? Nice. nice. Then we see our third result, and our third result's just about uh, Captain Vasir, who is a uh, second lieutenant at a fire department, and he also coaches Pee Wee League football in Springfield. But we're not sure which Springfield, because there are oh so many. Yes. Springfield, Illinois. Springfield, Indiana. Springfield, Massachusetts. And then we see the fourth result, which is the one he clicks on, and it's about a fire at the Vissier apartment complex in the East Village. Springfield, Wisconsin? I don't right? fucking know. I don't... Yeah. But yeah, the fourth entry is the one that he's looking for. It's about the Vissier apartment building, and it mentions that 13 people were unaccounted for, no bodies mm-hmm. found, just gone, and that six people were seriously injured due to smoke-related injuries. Yes. This article was also released on March 26, 1994, according to the website, which means that the fire probably happened presumably on... On the 25th or so because the image does appear to be at night the one they have in the picture yes we then cut to what seems to be a live recording of a twilight zone-esque podcast yes. called mystery signals true tales of the secret city hosted by your host mark higgins and we see dan sitting in the audience watching it yep mark his dan's only friend it's hard to tell but assumedly yeah yeah either that or the show just didn't have the budget to like hire more actors so after his live recording we see dan and mark walking down the street talking and mark is telling dan about a story of a guy who was super poor and was getting a ring for his fiance, and he found a good deal on a vintage ring so he got it for her and like two days after she put it on she claimed to see a she started seeing ghosts and mirrors and it drove her crazy yeah and dan's just like that's bullshit i don't believe that stuff and mark's like oh yeah i forgot you're mr realistic stick in the mud but you get paranoid about shit all the time so i should mention i wasn't saying the show has a low budget there's only one effect in the entire two episodes we saw that i would classify as a low budget effect everything else i mean that's well done i wouldn't say it was high budget but like it works i mean they do really well with their audio scape though yeah audios which like, makes a fuck ton of sense given the fact that this was a podcast originally so yeah. assuming the podcast has good audio work like you don't want to lose that adapting it to television yeah the audio work on the show whoever did the audio work deserves a fucking round of applause mm-hmm. but yeah mark makes fun of dan like you were saying for being a non-believer but being still being like super paranoid about everything yeah and then mark kind of gets worried he's like look if stuff starts to get too overwhelming for you, like, you can come to me. Like, don't isolate yourself off, man. Yeah, because like, they get to what I assume to be Mark's apartment building, and he seems to, like, signal, like, do you want to come up? And Dan's just like, now nah, I got an early day tomorrow. And Mark's like, the museum opens at noon. How do you have an early day ever? Yeah. And then he's just like, man, if you start to get down, like, you can talk to me. Rely on me, man. We're fucking friends. Anyways, because of the next day, and it is an early day because Karen is specifically talking to Dan. She's like, good work. Quick turnaround on this film and on this tape respiration. And he's like, yeah, but it doesn't seem like anything the museum would be interested in. Yeah. And she's like, mm, it's not. I was just doing a favor for a rich donor. Yeah. But I'd like to point out, what the fuck, Mark? Like, okay, the museum doesn't open to the public until noon. Yeah. But it doesn't mean they're not doing shit there. Like, 
I don't know, restoring things. Yeah, but you have to realize organizing displays. You have to realize Mark doesn't have a nine to five job of any variety. He records a podcast for a living and doesn't have a concept of like actual working hours. Imagine fucking recording a podcast. Imagine recording a podcast for a living. I just did and now I'm sad. Anyways, I'm going to continue recording this podcast that we do not for a living and make zero dollars on. Yeah, so Karen congratulates him. And she mentions that the donor actually wants to thank Dan later today. So she puts down a business card. And the business card says, Virgil Davenport, LMG, President. Yep. That's it. And then it has an address and number. Then we cut to Dan, and he is outside the LMG building. Mm-hmm. It's just a tall skyscraper, with which the, I mean, I guess all skyscrapers yeah. are tall, with the letters LMG, and they're like three-story tall letters plastered yeah. into the side of the building. I say into the side because it's not like they're, they're slapped on there. It's like recessed into the building. Yes. And then we get a weird angle from the top down as Dan heads in, and then Dan's in the elevator, and then Dan's out of the elevator, and he's in this nice big office. And he's being greeted by Virgil Davenport, who immediately orders himself... And Dan and Arnold Palmer from his secretary. These drinks never show up during this entire meeting, though. I'm pretty sure Virgil's does, because he does thank you at some point to someone. Oh, maybe. But Dan never has one. If he does, he never drinks it. Mm-hmm. But Virgil is an older white guy. With a southern accent. He's just, I would call, southern business casual, as movies have made me think of. So he's wearing, like, nice-looking jeans, but still jeans, a tan sports coat, and, like, a dress shirt underneath that. What just and that's is, all tucked in. What Justice actually means is he's not wearing a seersucker suit. Well, yeah, that would just be Southern business. I said Southern business casual, which means you have to put jeans in there somewhere. Yeah. So Davenport congratulates Dan on a job well done. And he's like, actually, we'd like to hire you, but just on a temporary basis. Yes. Don't go get any ideas. It would just be a job to restore the other tapes that were with this one. This was kind of a trial run. You know, we, we just got your museum to do a free tape restoration for us on a trial basis, but we're trying to get you on to do this whole thing, restoring all these tapes that were damaged in this fire at the Visor building. He doesn't He doesn't specifically call it the Visor building. Well, but he also doesn't mention the tape or anything first yet. Oh, my bad. The first co- bit of the conversation is he mentions that Dan did a good job and that they'd like to have him do something for them. And then Dan says, like, well, what do you guys do? I couldn't find anything on you. Versus like, yeah, you tried to look us up, couldn't find anything, could you? Seems fair, we couldn't find anything on you either. Which sets the tone for the entire conversation. Dan is very standoffish after the point that Virgil acknowledges that they were trying to look up his past. Well, another point. You should be able to find information on companies online. Yeah. They aren't private entities. Not typically. I mean, I guess some companies are private companies. But in general, companies aren't private entities. Whereas people are. So it's much less weird to not be able to find something about a person online than it is to not be able to find something about a business online. Yeah. So then Virgil does the whole explaining that the tape thing. And it seems like, to me, as Dan's kind of like a bit standoffish, Virgil kind of calls him an artist. And what he does is like, I assume a way to, you know, sweeten him up. Yeah, he's literally just buttering him up the entire time. He's like, oh, you're so good at what you do. But he's also keeping himself in power in this moment because he's, this is the type of job where you would like, because obviously Dan can't see how badly damaged it is. One would assume he would see it and then offer like how much the rate would be because, well, depends on how bad the damage is. But Virgil's just like, $100,000, what would give you? You'd have gone to this private compound we have in the Catskills because we can't move the stuff because it's so damaged. Yeah, it's on it. Like, it's contracted work. And typically when you're doing contracted work, the person hiring is like, hey, this is the max amount I can spend. And the person doing the work is like, yeah, but this is my rate. 
Yes. So Dan seems... And you negotiate from there. But yeah. Davenport doesn't want to negotiate. He's just like, $100,000, that's it, up front, no more, no less. But you got to go do. You gotta go to our place to do it, on our terms to do it. Dan still doesn't seem to be on board to do it. So Virgil presses on, saying like, it would mean a lot to everyone here at the company, as well as all the people who lost their family or friends in the fire, which, you know, you must relate to. And Dan just like looks at him weirdly, like staring. And then Virgil's like, you know, because you lost your family in a fire. And at that point, Dan's like, nope, fuck you, I'm out. Mm-hmm. And Virgil is like, no, nah, I think, you know, it means it means a lot to you. You can relate. After all, that's part of the reason why you uh, do what you do. You want to be able to repair things and give back small lost parts of things to people. That way they have them. And Dan's like, sorry, I got to get back to work. And Virgil's like, I- I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, if you change your mind, let us know. So... Outside the building, Dan calls Mark because he's freaking out because Davenport shouldn't have had any way to know about the fire that killed his family. It's not on the internet. It's not public knowledge. Like, yeah. there's no reason why Davenport should have had that information. But he does for some reason. We then get a flashback to the fire that killed his family. Uh, he was apparently out walking the family dog when it happened. Mm-hmm. Then he snaps awake in his bed. Which and makes sense. So Dan wakes up really panicky from his bed. And then he gets on his computer and he opens a copy of the videotape of Melody Pindress. And starts to watch it. And then he notices on her, like, vanity that she's a bunch of, like, little pictures. And he zooms in on one of her with a dog. Upon seeing the dog, he calls Mark and he's like, you gotta come over here. I gotta show you something. Yeah, we also see that he focuses in on a photo on his desk that also has a dog. <laughs> so he explains to Mark that he thinks Melody's dog and his dog, same dog. Yeah. And Mark's like, are you, are you sure? And Dan's like, golden uh, retrievers, they all kind of look the same, yeah. Dan. Dan's like, no, I saved up three weeks allowance to buy her that call. No, no, no. At first, like, when they first started this conversation, Mark points it out, and Dan's like, yeah, you're right, I'm not entirely sure. And then Mark is like, well, is she, like, one of the, did, did she die in that fire? And Dan's like, well, officially, no one died in the fire. Yeah. And Mark's like, 13 people unaccounted for? Sounds like people died to me. And Dan's like, no, I looked her up, but I couldn't find anything. And obviously, Josh and I were like, really? Because, uh... On that search you originally did, I found something about it. Oh, we just find out that apparently Dan's really bad with Google. Because <laughs> his friend looks her up on Google and finds two Melody Pendresses. And then eventually... Well, well no. Dan... Not there yet. Dan searched her up later and found two things on Google. Mark did and that. No. Dan finds the two. Mark finds the actual person. No. He's just on a phone conversation once they're at the compound. Once he's at the compound. No, it's literally right in this conversation. Dan says he searched and found nothing. And then he said he even paid for a searchy people oh, app. you're right. I'm sorry. I'm stupid. And this was five hours ago. Yeah. And my notes weren't that thoroughly detailed. It, it's literally being, like... Despite being a 5,000 word essay. Yeah, it's literally right after my notes of like, weird, I distinctly remember a link to a short story that had her name in the description and mentioned the Vistier building. And then I have, he also paid for a people searchy app, got a 90-year-old lady in Orlando and a dead lady in 1923 who died of typhoid fever. Yeah, I have those too. Mm-hmm. They're just later in my notes. And then Mark just asks him if this entire thing is about Jill. And he's like, you know, if you want, I can set you up with someone. This is also the scene where we find out that Mysterious Signals is actually a podcast, not just some type of weird stage show. Yeah, I had assumed it was a podcast, though. It was one guy talking to a microphone from a microphone. We had two other people apparently voice acting something, and we had a guy doing Foley work. So. And Mark's like, I think you're just seeing stuff where there isn't anything. And then Dan's like, you know what? You're right. And I should take a closer look. Yeah. I'm going to take this job. Because this is where, uh, this is where Dan is then just like, I stayed up for three weeks to buy that collar for the, for the dog. And 
Marcus is like, man, I think you're looking for shit. Because, like, at first in the conversation, before Jill, Dan seems a lot more reasonable about this conversation. And yeah. then Mark mentions Jill, and Dan's just like, you know what? No, I think that is the same dog all of a sudden. Yep. I saved up for three weeks to buy that collar for my dog. He says her name, the dog's name here, but I do not remember. It is in my notes at a later point. Yeah. So then Mark's just like, dude, I looked up LMG and I found nothing. That Maybe they'll build it in a Death Star. Do you want to help them build a Death Star? And he's like, sure, I'll help them build a Death Star. You told me I'm looking for things. Maybe I should look deeper. So he decides to go to the Catskills to their remote research lab. And he rides up to, to the Catskill Mountains with Davenport. Yes. And it's like black SUV, which no, you're not taking me up into the mountains when I know nothing about you or your company. And you're, you're not taking me up into the mountains and leaving me there without a vehicle. Not yeah. something we're doing. And it's not helped at all because in this car ride, Virgil claims that he learned about Dan's family. And how he grew up in the Hudson River Valley. Yeah, via a background check. Which, no. Which, you know, is um, weird. And then they pull up to a leaf-covered road, drive down it, and up to an electronic gate, which they open. And then they come around to this kind of old-looking building, but not super old. It's just not been cleaned, like pressure washed on the outside in a while, because it's, it's stone. It's, it's very, like, I want to say, like, 70s and 80s brutalist architecture. Like, yeah, which I'm down with. I, I actually like the building. Yeah. It's a nice building. Like, if this was somebody's home, it'd be highly impressive. Mm-hmm. As it's a company's research campus and lab, not as impressive. Yeah. So Virgil gives like the history of it and a brief tour. So he shows them to the living space. Uh, apparently, they, assumedly the company, bought it in the 80s as a research place. Now they mainly use it for storage and special projects like this. And then he mentions to Dan, yeah, you can, uh, groceries will be brought in once a week. Fridge is fully stocked. Pantry is fully stocked. If you want anything for groceries, just ask the, for whatever. Just let the grocery guy know. Yeah. But there um, is no internet, and there is basically no cell service. Yeah, but it's fine. We have landlines. You reliable. Can, you can use it as much as you want. Also, he doesn't mention it, but we see it, that this place does have at least updated lock. It's an electronic lock at the front door with a key card, mm-hmm. and there's electronic lodged. Well, I mean, I think this feeds into what he says next, which is where he takes Dan to the lab, and he's like, your lab has full state-of-the-art equipment. Everything here is top-of-the-line, locks, etc., etc., etc. Mind you, I'd argue not everything is top-of-the-line. Maybe all the equipment that Dan uses is top of the line, but you know what's not top of the line? The fucking lighting. Oh, yeah. Building is dark as fuck, which I get. This is a horror show. Yeah, they're obviously using dark lighting, but, like, like if I was working in this place in a thing where you need to have good light to see, so even though he, like, uses a small table lamp to, like, illuminate better, I'd be removing all the coverings for the lights in this place as well I, to get like, better lighting. He was like, anything you need, we can get you. I'd be like, yeah, I need about... 30,000 more lumens of lighting for this place and also a satellite internet connection yeah so then virgil shows him the archives that they have which has the tapes from the visir complex fire as As, well as the uh og camera that it was all recorded on which davenport strictly goes out his way to be like i don't think you're gonna need this but we thought we'd just keep it all together you know Mm -hmm. and then he also mentions that they have blank tapes and hard drives in the equipment room as well yep so outside of the front door they're standing at like the porch walkway thing Mm -hmm. And Davenport goes, oh yeah, one last thing before I go. Well, he thanks him first, politely. Yeah. We have this for you. And Dan takes it. He's like, you want me to get my steps in? Because it looks like a pedometer. I think it... It looks more like a smartwatch. Yeah. And he's like, it's a medical call button in case you need any medical assistance while you're out here. We have... Trained medical professionals within 20 minutes of you calling for mm-hmm. help. If you need anything, whether it's mental or physical, just push the button. And then Dan gets really offended. He's like, what do you mean if I need anything? need any mental help? 
And Virgil's just like, like I said, we did an extensive background check. We know about your history. We know it's past you, but you know, it's just in case. We want you to as be able to do as, this. As far as LMG is concerned, your breakdown is in the past. This is just a liability precaution for us. Mm-hmm. Dan just is a bitch about it. Though. Oh like yeah, that. he's snarkily just like, well, do you need stool, blood, urine? Maybe you got a fucking Rorschach test in the back you want to hit me with. Like, I get somebody having had serious mental issues might have a hair trigger in regards to that. But honestly, this is the best Davenport gets as a person. He's like, look, this is me just trying to help you. If you need anything, if you're going down to the lab and you trip on this walkway out here and are nowhere near the phone, you have a button that can call for help. Look at that. Not trying to be a dick. It's literally for liability purposes. So then Davenport leaves and our camera pulls out and it looks just like Dan puts the watch in his pocket and then he walks back inside and he immediately gets one of the tapes. Well, no, he explores the building and he checks out the, the visor archives. But before he actually just grabs a tape, he attempts to open a door with his key card, but well, it won't open. Well, I mean, he, he grabs a tape. And then he goes to check the other door. Oh, no, he grabs the camera. Looks at looks it. Looks at the camera. Puts so he, he goes to grab a tape, grabs the camera, looks at the camera, sees another door, tries to open it. It doesn't unlock. And then he grabs the first tape. And then starts work. After he finishes restoring the tape, he pops it in to check it before he digitizes it. And it's Melody Pindress. Mm-hmm. You might recognize her from the other two times we've seen her already. Yes. And now it's March 11th, 1994 at 10.32 a.m. And it's her first day at the Visor Apartment Building Complex and the start of the Visor Archive Project. Yes. So 15 days before the article mentioning the fire. Also, just a weird line that Dan had when he tried to open that door was he says out loud to himself, curiosity killed the cat and then grabs the tape and leaves yeah so we then cut to her and not like cut to her on the film but like we cut to melody as our main protagonist not from her camera's point of view but just like as if we're following her as a television show so, so now we're in her timeline basically yeah, we're following tells, her and she tells us that the visor building was built in 1932 or 1934 by an unknown architect it's unclear what year it was built in nobody knows for sure but it just looks like a bunch of other apartment buildings built around the 1930 time except it was built on the ruins of a mansion that burned down in the 1920s mm-hmm. and so she's walking towards the building uh, a guy goes to leave and he's holding the door open for her and she's like no don't worry about it and she focuses on the stonework around the loading. And we see what's probably meant to be, obviously meant to be like a magic circle of some sort. Pentagram-esque is the terminology I've used for it. Yeah. I think it's actually like some overlapping squares, maybe? It looked like two overlapping squares. To form like a six-point star. And a triangle overlapping both of those with some symbol in the middle of the triangle. Yeah. Like I said, pentagram-esque. Mm-hmm. And she notes that it's really weird iconography to have on the building's facade. Mm-hmm. And then she notices that it's also right above the door. Yes, and then the door opens, and a guy's like, who are you? Are right. you Melody Pinders? Yeah, he almost hits her, and she's kind of like taken by surprise by him. Yeah, and he appears to be the building's super. Yep. John and, Smith. And he gives her a tour of the apartment, shows her where the community room is, the mailboxes are, and then takes her up the stairs to her room because the elevator is currently down. Mm-hmm. We learn his name, like you said, is John Smith. She makes a joke because John's so common. And he's like, thanks, I'll tell my mom how popular my name is. Mm-hmm. Well, he goes to leave the apartment for showing her where everything is. Yes. I'm mentioning that another tenant, the last tenant left books there. I only mention it because it's a suspense for the horror thing, so there's always the possibility of the last person before leaves notes. Well, even beyond that, he says the last tenant left books. The last tenant also left, like, straight-up furniture. 
Yeah, because this place is furnished, so. Yeah. He's like, do you have any questions? And she goes, actually, yes, I do. Do you know a Julia Bennett? Who may live or lived here? And he's like, I can't tell you. That would violate privacy laws. And she's like, yeah, I was just wondering, you know, uh, she's someone I used to know that I lost contact with. And he's just like, uh. And then she's like, oh, also, do you have any advice on making friends in the building? He's like, avoid the sixth floor. And then leaves. Yep. Melody then talks about the apartment just for her recording. And that it's her first time living alone. And wish her luck. Yep, she stops recording. We kind of stay focused on her after the camera stops rolling, though. Yeah, she goes to bed. She goes to bed. She's sleeping in her bed. Something wakes her up, though. I can't really tell what's supposed to wake her up just here. Like the, the... It sounded like a metronome. It was like a clicking back and forth, consistent clicking. Well, here's the, here's my big issue with this scene. The music that's playing in the background and the thing that wakes her up being like a chanting melody and music. Yeah. Hard to tell what is actually in the show that she's hearing and what is in the show for the audience. Yes. I think here it's kind of obvious, in my opinion, especially more so as we continue on because we do hear the song multiple times after this. It literally took me until she removes the vent cover off her vent to realize what was going on, like what had woken her up. Yeah, cause she kind of picks up her camera to start recording and then crawls along her floor to her radiator. Air vents, not radiator. It has a radiator attachment and it also is like a large and bulky enough. I assume it both heats and cools. Anyways, when we get close to the air vent, we start hearing this chanting. Mm-hmm. And it gets louder. She removes the cover from the event. She then does the, like, stupidest horror movie thing you can ever do. And that is, hello? Is anyone there? Yes. Hello? Also, as the music things pick up and it gets more tense for us, supposedly, to watch, we're now back in the video format. Mm -hmm. We are now watching the video of her, not watching her, watching the video of her. Then there is some static on the camera. And audio spikes. Uh, Yeah, big audio spike. And then it quickly jumps to the next morning, March 12th. Well, we see Dan. He covers his ear. And then the video goes bad. And then then it's the morning. Yeah. Yeah. The elevator is working now. Uh, While knocking on doors to to try to interview somebody, we see somebody coming out of an elevator. Mm -hmm. And Melody chases that person down. And it's a teenage girl named Jess. Yes. Jess does odd jobs for the people in the buildings. Getting Mm -hmm. coffee, getting sandwiches, picking up pharmacy stuff, fetching mail. Doing whatever. So on and so forth, yeah. So Melody tries to get her to introduce her to people for the project. And Jess is just like, well, what's the project about? Melody's like, it's an oral history. I want people to tell me about themselves, why they live in the building. And Jess is just like, you know, I'm kind of busy. I'm booked. And then Melody's like, I'll pay you $25 a week. And now Jess is on board. Then we cut to an interview with Tamara Stefano, who was born about 30 years ago in Rome, moved to New York when she was 10, and has lived at the Visor building for about six years now. Yes. She moved to the Visor because it specifically had room for her piano and was really cheap. Yes. And she is a experimental composer. And Mel's just like, oh, I think I heard you last night. And Tamara's like, impossible. I was performing at the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And then she puts on her new piece of music called Purgatory. It's a experimental choir piece that also has some piano in it. Yeah, it's an experimental choir piece specifically about what it is to descend into a shadow world. Yes. And specifically about the human suffering of that shadow world. Yeah, so we have a lot of tense atmosphere, minor instrumentation, you know. Chanting, so on. Mm-hmm. Melody thinks it was the same thing she heard the previous night. But before Tamara can actually actively object or have a conversation about it, a phone rings and she leaves the room to answer it. Well, before that, she does point out behind Melody a pile of masks and like some white cloaks almost and says when performing, she has the choir put that on. They're kind of like Undertaker's phantom mask from when he cracked his orbital socket. I think more importantly, the masks are very similar to the ones worn by the people in the circle when dan was fixing that you know you're right i thought it was just like a parallel going on between there now that you mention it you're right i'm still gonna stick with the undertaker 
phantom mask that he wore after he cracked his orbital bone. So then she gets the call, and we kind of just sit there as Mel listens to the music just as in the background. And as the music continues, it gets more and more dissonant, and Mel seems to become more and more unsteady. Here's the part where it was hard for me to know what we were hearing Mm -hmm. as the song and what we were supposed to be hearing as a viewer of the show. Yep. Eventually, Melody falls against the wall, and Jess, who seems completely unaffected by the music, is like, do you need me to get you something? A sandwich? A soda? Something? Because we later learn Jess is maybe diabetic. She has blood sugar issues, which would imply diabetes if not. Yeah. Anyways, static crackles, tape ends, and then Dan, who is just sitting at his computer, well, not his computer, at the TV and workstation, hums some of Purgatory. Yeah, like, he stares at this tape, confused, intrigued, obviously, and then he's humming the song, but just before the video ended, Melody was, like, asking, like, does, how, does the song make you feel and just can't seem to express, like, what sensation she's feeling at the moment, but it seems to deeply unsettle her. Mm-hmm. Dan then attempts to call Mark, goes to voicemail, though. And he asks Mark to look up tomorrow at Stefano, mm-hmm. but before he can like get into details, the call gets disconnected. Yes. He then hangs up and tries to call back, but only gets clicking noises and what sounds like somebody breathing. And yeah. he's like, is anyone there? Hello? Gets no answer, obviously. So he sets down the phone that was connected to the landline and heads outside with his cell phone and earbuds in. Yeah, it kind of looks like he's going for a jog, but he's actually looking for phone signal. He eventually comes to a tall chain link fence and can't seem to get signal. He proceeds to go around looking around the building. He's checking all the doors inside and stuff. Some of which seem to be locked, which is weird. uh, Because he was told he had the keys to the kingdom, which to me... Sounds like full access. Going to episode two for a second. Dan will eventually enter a place in the building he's not allowed to be in. Davenport catches him. And Davenport's like, obviously this was strictly off limits area. What are you doing? And if I was Dan, I'd been like, you said I had the keys to the kingdom. That would imply that there are no off-limits areas. What are you talking about, good sir? Anyways, not going to dive into episode two plot yet. Mm -hmm. So now he's getting ready for bed, and then Davenport calls him, and he's just like, I want to see how everything's going, make sure you eat, make sure you rest. You know, we just really care about the fact that you're okay here while you're doing this. Let us know if anything's off, even if the bed's just a little too firm or a little too soft, so that we can get it replaced for you, so you can have your best sleep while you're working on this. Mm -hmm. And then we see him in like the lounging area and he's looking at a bookshelf and he pulls a notebook off, a composite notebook, you know, those black and white speckledy things. And the notebook is just filled with handwritten writing. It looks like a journal. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought like, obviously this is going to be somebody else that's done a project here and like they're slow descent into insanity and like. It's handwritten summaries of episodes of General Hospital. Anyways, he eventually settles in to watch a movie, then goes into the kitchen to put his plate up from his dinner and is startled by a large rat it's a rat yeah yeah he then proceeds to in a panicking way set up a whole bunch of mouse traps all throughout the kitchen yes. area we then have a dream of him as a child playing piano interspersed with him and his dog the dream ends when his dad goes what are you playing and not like in a casual way, he's like what are you playing yeah i mean the dream starts with like a black screen and then we get the metronome and the dream ends on a black screen as well but now the piano playing is picking up Yes. He's woken by the sounds of a rat tripping. Squealing, yeah. Yeah, he's woken by the sounds of a rat tripping at one of the traps and squealing in pain. Mm-hmm. He gets out of bed to go investigate, finds a mouse in the trap. It is definitively a mouse, by the way. <laughs> yeah, based on its size and like just its he, shape. He even makes a box up for it, and he's like, it's okay, rat. You can stay here until your tail hills. It is I'm now not, rat again. I'm not a rat person, but... Yeah. So now him and the rat are in his office work area space, and they're doing the next video. Yep. This tape features Jess talking about how she has low blood sugar, and one of her teachers keeps 
like yeah. raisins in the desk because when her blood sugar gets low instead of like getting tired or, or, or dizzy she gets mean yeah this then proceeds into an interview of jessica mm-hmm. by melody her name is jessica lewis she is a ninth grader at east village community high she was born march 8 1980 which means she just turned 14 mm-hmm. at 4 21 p.m in the afternoon in the visor building itself in the east stairwell yes she was born six weeks early actually yep melody's like wow that's super cool and jess is like oh you don't think it's bad luck to be born here and melody's like no it'll be a cool story when you get old yeah so then jess is like well why are you interested in the visor building she turns the camera around when melody's like i was listening to an interview meet me now and then melody talks about the previous mansion and how it burned down and jess is just like so people died here and melody's like um i i don't think so and then turns the camera back around yeah, it ends with her saying she just wants to know the people's story and why they chose to live here. And at this point, Jess turns the camera back around and says... Jess doesn't turn the camera back around. We focus on her here. Oh, do we? Yeah, we... we okay, uh, yeah. She turns it once and the Melody turns it back when she says, yeah. I don't know. So she says she just wants to know people's story and why they choose to live here. And then Jess replies to Melody saying she wants to know why people chose to live here. Jess is just like, something pulled them here. And then she looks at Melody and she's like, did Samuel tell you about this place? Yep. And Melody has no idea who Samuel is. So when Melody doesn't recognize the name, Jess seems to calm down. She was really tense. Yes. Jess is like, never mind. We had an awkward silence. But then she kind of like focuses to the right and behind Melody and just starts scooting her chair away from her. Slowly back. Slowly back. Slowly back. Before she suddenly snaps to her feet like tippy toes. As if being choked. Darth Vader's behind Melody. Yeah. That's That's the spoilers. This is actually another Star Wars review. We tricked you. Let's go. Yeah, so Jess freaks out. Not Jess. Melody freaks out, and she's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And then Jess collapses to the ground and starts convulsing. Yes. uh, I think a vaguely important thing here, though, is just before she snaps up, we have the same audio build that we did with the uh, radiator, and we get this exact same audio build and, like, tone when we have similar moments later with the uh, choir music bit. At this point, the video starts to distort, both Mm -hmm. sonically and visually, and we kind of get glimpses of what looks like a demonic face. Yes. And then it's a full-blown demon face, like, trying to protrude from the screen. Yeah, it's leaning out of the screen almost. And trying to lean out then of the runs out of the building. And tries to call Mark by his cell phone. Eventually manages to find an area with cell signal and does reach Mark. Yeah, and Mark's just like, dude, your call earlier freaked me the fuck out. And the way it just cut off, like, I didn't know if you were attacked by a bear or what. There are bears up there, right? And Dan's just like, LMG was listening. And Mark's like, that's fucking bullshit, man. Some 1984-style bullshit right yeah. there. Dan then tries to tell Mark what he saw, but he can't get the words out. Yeah, and Mark's like, are you going all Jack Torrance on me up there, man? Shining joke yeah. reference. D- Dan kind of ignores it and goes, and is like, no, but what did you find out of Tamara Stefano? Mark's like, no such composer exists. Thank you very much. And Dan's like, okay, well, uh... Can you look up anything about LMG or Melody Pindris? Or maybe some more tomorrow, Stefano stuff. And Mark's just like, sure, man, I'm your Google. And then they end their call. Dan then looks around. He's trying to find... He's it's, he's obviously trying to figure out a way to, like, recognize where this spot is or yeah. find a way to get back to it. And not seeing anything he can, like, use as a landmark marker. or marker. He pulls the string out of his hoodie, the string that controls how tight your hood is. Yeah. Ties it to a tree branch and... As he's doing that, our camera kind of pans around him. And we see someone in a red hoodie or coat off a bit in the forest hiding behind a tree. Yep. And then he seems to look around as if someone's, as if he feels someone watching him, but the guy's gone now. Or woman, we don't know who or what the entity is. We then kind of jump back to the dream about him playing the piano and his dad yelling at him to stop. And his dad yells at him to take Cleo for a walk because Cleo's been inside all day. This is interspersed with scenes of Dan drinking coffee outside watching the sunset. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And his dad, well, yelling at him about the song he's playing on the piano, asks him where he heard the song. Yeah. And he says, on the tape. We don't know what tape he's talking about. But that's pretty much all the information we get here. We do see the building, the house burning down again. So him walking the dog and the piano thing. All seem to happen on the same day. Yeah, it's all the same day. Then we jump back to the archives where he immediately starts work on a new tape. Well, he doesn't immediately start work. He gets to the archives and he's got the tape ready to go. And he's like, you would tell me if you saw something weird in the tape, right, Ratty? Yeah. And, and the rat kind of just turns away from him. And like he's like, yeah, that's what I thought. So then he injects the tape and he's pulling it out and the tape has gotten pulled out in the VCR. And I think he actually returns to the same tape because he winds this back up, puts it in a new cassette and we don't see him go to get another one from the archive. That's a fair point. So I think he just fixes this one and then puts it back in because we pick up like right where it left off and there wouldn't have been time to change tapes. Yeah, that's fair. So we could pick up where we left off, like you said. Tape cuts from the convulsing on the floor to just Mm -hmm. sitting at the table and she's like, she's finishing a glass of water. She's like, can I have a Mountain Dew now? Yeah, and Jess is just like, are you okay? What, what does the doctor say about... Mel- Melody. Yeah. Mel asks Jess like, about what just happened. And Jess is just like, I don't know. The doctor says there isn't anything wrong. Melody is like, no, you definitely just had a fucking seizure. She's like, okay, so what does your mom say? And Jess is like, well, my mom takes me to the priest for, for spiritual guidance. And she says I should tell the priest what I see when I have these, when I have these episodes. And the Melody's like, well, what do you see? And Jess is like, uh, nothing. I forget them as soon as they stop. Yeah. And then she immediately asks Mel... If Melody goes to church and Melody's like, no, no, not really. Yeah, we get on this kind of train about religion, which eventually leads to Jess being like, do you believe in other worlds? Heaven and hell? And no. No, like just that another world exists. Similar, but yet more than this one. And Melody starts to show signs of hesitance about interviewing a minor. She's like, you know, maybe- I probably should have got your mom's permission. And Jess goes... You think I'm a freak, don't you? The yeah. kids at school think I'm a freak, too. And Melody's like, no, 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 no. And then Jess is like, do you think I could be more than I am? And Melody's like, of course you can. You can be anything you want. Do you want. think I could hold an entire new world in me? Yep. And then the video goes grainy again before mm-hmm. cutting to show the very video from the opening of the episode, which is now interspersed with cuts of Daniel Yes. reacting to it. But this video now shows John Smith telling Melody that he told her to stay off the sixth floor. That it was restricted, which isn't what he said. He just said, don't go to the sixth floor. To make friends. Yeah. He would have said nothing about it if she hadn't asked about it. Yes. But she told that Jess is gone before being approached yes. by multiple men. We see the guy who opened the door for her mm-hmm. in the beginning uh, with the building in the stairwell looking at her. It kind of gets skippy there, and then she's in a different hallway and there's two guys in uniforms of some sort and then dan's father walks in to try to calm her down she's like why are you here what are you doing here and that's kind of the end of the video yeah dan Um, Dan rewinds to look at it again because it's his dad and his dad supposedly Mm -hmm. died in a fire but when was the fire that killed his family how old is dan do you think Mm -hmm. this is 2022 dan would have had to be like 10 ish yeah, it's about there. In the flashbacks. I don't know. Like, my question is, and I don't think it's the case because Dan hasn't mentioned it yet, but does the Melody tapes happen after his house supposedly burned down? I have no idea. So. I say supposedly burned down. As his house did burn down, as far as we know. Yeah. I guess that is supposedly. So, as he's watching it, he begins to hyperventilate. And so, we zoom out. Dan's hyperventilating. We're zooming out. Our screen fades to a black and white grayish image. And we get a bank of monitors. And then we see Virgil watching Dan, and our screen goes black, and we end with just the sound of Dan hyperventilating. Yep. So that's the end of episode one. You got anything to say? Can I, or you want me to go take it? You can go first. I need a drink of water. Honestly, this show is so fucking good. Like, I came into this expecting, like, a supernatural paranormal show, and by the end of this episode, I don't know if there's any supernatural elements at all. Like, it could all just be people's minds. And that, like, 
honestly, psychosis is so much scarier than like ghosts and demons. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, the show's very good. This episode doesn't have it, but this episode does actually have a, have a little bit of it. It does dream sequences very well. Like, dream yeah. sequences feel like dreams in the way that, like, they're disjointed, but they still feel like they flow. And, like, even though things don't make sense in them, they have an internal continuity. Yes. Very good. We get our best example of that in the next episode. And the next episode literally has the best dream sequence I've seen since, like, Scott Pilgrim, which sounds like a whack thing to say, but if you don't go back and watch Scott Pilgrim's dream sequences and not think fuck, this is really well done, you're wrong. Yeah, so I'd very much have to agree. I think the show, and I mainly have this noted just because we did take notes on stuff, it's dense as fucking hell, Mm -hmm. but it's very intriguing. So I get a vaguely creepypasta no sleep type vibe but i think that's legitimately just because it reminds me especially because of the ending of like my favorite one ever i think it's like called paranoia or something the one where the guy just stays trapped in his room further and further like isolates himself yeah yeah he puts cameras in the hallway because he sees less and less people and then it ends with like oh he actually knows it's this idea that there are people watching him and there's weird shit going on but it's it's this idea of social horror rather than a supernatural horror i think between the two of us i could assume a lot more yeah no sleep and creepypasta and in general i would say this doesn't have those vibes it does have the vibes of like other horror based podcasts i've listened to i was thinking particularly when i said no sleep of the no sleep podcast because it has a very well designed audio scape for it i was thinking more like the black tapes yeah i mean which even though the title is about tapes is a lot less about it's it's less about tape restoration than like you know what i'm not gonna go and do it go listen to the black tapes unfortunately it ends without resolution because that's what happens when creatives don't get the support they need support your favorite art do it if you like art go support it so that it doesn't just end and you're left wondering what they were where they were going with it support your favorite artists but yeah honestly i would watch more of this so now on to episode two wellspring this opens with a sign sound then a no signal screen and their commercial for wellspring dna kits your story starts here yeah it's just a commercial it's a bunch of people of different cultures it's a 23andme ancestry.com bullshit commercial then we go to back to the no signal screen the one with all the color bars and we get to the intro honestly though the opening really just reminded me of a uh, better off ted it, originally in my notes i had typed very better off ted but like it's not i, don't, I just i don't know why no it's just because it opens with an ad and that was everything every single episode of better off ted did for like the entire series yeah and if it had been a slightly more ominous dna testing thing it might have had a more better off ted vibe to it yeah because better off ted had a very like slightly ominous vibe to all of its stuff so we get our opening after that and then after our opening dan is out in the woods calling mark again mm-hmm. apparently he tried to call him six times last night yep because it's daytime now and Dan tells Mark about his dad being in the video. And the guards yeah. dragging Melody away were and from Rockland, which Mark specifically calls out as being a nut house. Not how we refer to that in 2022, Mark. I'm sorry that we have to inform you of this. We don't call them nut houses. We just don't. Not okay. Yeah. So then Mark asks Dan, like, well, why would your dad be there? And Dan's just like, I mean, he, he was a psych major who worked at NYU, but... Psych professor? Yeah. But other than that, I have no idea. And Mark's just like, well, what else was on the tapes? And Dan's just like, I, I don't know, but I swear, Davenport must have known what was on the tapes. There's another reason for him to have scouted me and picked me. He chose me because he knows my dad's on the tapes. And Which Mark's like... seems counterintuitive, honestly. Like... Wouldn't it make more sense to get somebody who's not involved at all? So, like, then I guess the demon stuff might, like, push most people away. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So Mark's just like, look, man, you got options. You can keep your cool, find out more about what's going on, or you can blow the cover and the fact that you know what happened and get fired and not find out anything and also not have a job. Yep. So Dan's just like, 
True. Hey, Mark, can you check my aunt place? Because she has all my dad's old files and records and stuff. And he tells Mark how to get the key. It's in a mug in his apartment. Yeah. And that his aunt is in Europe right now. Mm-hmm. And Mark's just like, sure. Also, do you know if, like, Melody knew your dad? And Dan's like, I don't fucking know, man. Mark's like, you should get some sleep because I know you've been up all night trying to call me. And Dan's like, yeah, 100%, I will. And then he goes and restores another tape. Yep. The next tape opens with Melody and Jess outrunning errands for people that live mm-hmm. at Visser. Melody asks Jess what she was going to say the other night. Because at the end of that tape, Jess goes, Can I ask you something? And then it just cuts. And yeah. apparently Jess never asked her anything. And Melody's like, what were you going to ask me? And Jess goes, uh, it was nothing. Yeah, so now they end up in a store. It and... looks like a pharmacy of some sort. Ah, uh, kind of. And then a priest walks up, and it's the priest that Jess mentioned. We don't dwell on this at all. Really, the priest just asks Melody if he'll see her on Sunday. Yep. And then Melody finds a movie adaptation of her favorite Rats of Nim book, which is also her favorite book from when she was a child. So she found the movie Secrets of Nim. It was a specific Secrets of Nim. Yeah. And then we see Jess picking up a old camera. Oh, Jess, like, kind of makes fun of the Rats of Nim. She has no idea what it is. Yeah. Like... She's kind of like, ah, old people. Yeah. I didn't really get that vibe, but whatever. And then she picks up an old video camera and she's like, I also make movies. Yep. So now this conversation continues, but they're back at the apartment building. And that's that's how conversations work. Even though you cut from being in one place and up here in the other, you're still having the same conversation. Yeah. And Melody asks her what type of movies she makes. And Jess is just like, I don't know, like poems. And we see her opening like a janitorial closet, then opening a wall locker built into it and putting the camera in there closing it leaving the closet yeah she apparently uses this closet to like store stuff she picks up for the people that live at visser because yeah it's weird like we mentioned earlier and like she mentioned earlier she basically does errands for petty cash for all the people that live in visser yeah so then we see a woman named miss wall hold on melody asks just before we see miss wall did you ever talk to your mom about doing that interview and just kind of really deflects here she's like and then then we see miss wall yeah we get introduced to Miss Wall. Jess introduces Melody to Miss Wall. And she's like, would you mind doing an interview at some point? And then Miss Wall gets really, really close to Melody. Kind of like she's going to kiss her on either side of the cheek. Mm-hmm. And instead just sniffs her. Yeah. On each side of the face. I mean, before that, though, she does greet Jess. Doesn't really greet Melody. And then invites Jess for tea later. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And as they leave, Jess is like, I'll talk to her about getting an interview. And we head upstairs to a different tenant. They open the door and they're greeted by Beatrice as Jess introduces her to Melody. Beatrice Reyes. Yes. As she goes to tell Beatrice why she's here and who Melody is, Beatrice is like, oh, all about the recording project and stuff. Yeah, Beatrice kind of fashions herself as a sidekick tarot reader fortune Mm -hmm. teller. And Uh, we start our interview with Beatrice Reyes, who was born in San Juan. But moved to LA when she was 16, and then she moved to Visser to stay with her cousin. But her cousin ran off with some pothead, and thus she inherited the lease and the fish. So Beatrice is telling her that all the residents here are strange, and that she's pretty sure there's a sex club on, like, the third floor, I think she said? No, she... It says that they meet in the community room on the first floor. Oh. And that she can even hear it from up here on the third floor. Yeah. Which, this is Beatrice rationalizing the moaning noises she hears at night. Mm -hmm. So then Beatrice is like, let's do a reading. And so she starts a tarot reading. It's a three-card reading. It's a very vague three-card reading. She pulls the three of swords and is like, oh, this means you had suffering in your past. Mm -hmm. You you must have had a bad childhood or something. And then she pulls the hermit and she's like, this means you're you're looking for something. Something's led you here obviously you're looking for something someone you're doing, you're doing this history thing and then mel mentions that she's trying to track down a historian julia, julia bennett she lived in the visser building in 
the 70s and then just seemed to drop off the face of the earth. Beatrice then mentions that there's a lady who apparently lives on the fourth floor. In room 4G. But no one sees her. But her mailbox gets full and then gets empty. And, mm-hmm. and then she does the future card, which she flips death for. And is instantly misinterpreted and used for like the idea of somebody dying within the context of the show. Beatrice does go, oh, it doesn't have to mean like literal death. But like the death tarot does not mean literal death. It means change. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, Beatrice said it didn't mean death. But after a long pregnant pause. Well, yeah, because. Th- which pauses have implications. Yeah, but I mean. The show is. You can still have a negative connotation with the death card even if it doesn't. It depends on the individual person and how you feel about the card. The death tarot upright has no negative connotation. It can. Every tarot card can have a negative connotation in any context. It doesn't necessarily, but it can. It's all about the basic interpretation. Beatrice doesn't. It's not Beatrice's fault. She's a character. The writers don't take the time to be authentic with it. Look, I'm not practicing tarot reader. I view it more like a framing device for your own psyche than like a fortune telling device. Oh yeah, no, definitely. It's just like, look, upright death can have a negative connotation because it can be the end of something. Ends aren't always happy. It just means that it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Most mm-hmm. tarot cards don't have a straight up negative meaning. The tower, like that almost does. The tower is weird, but like the tower, the devil doesn't necessarily have a negative meaning unless inverted. Yeah, a lot of cards just don't have negative meanings or positive meanings directly. No, they just have again, meanings. It, yeah, yeah, it's so supposed the, to be as, like, as open it, to interpretation as possible. Upright death doesn't have a positive or negative meaning, but it's just about endings and changes. I think the way the show portrays it, though, the show is obviously trying to say something with it that is not what it means. I mean, yeah, I guess I don't really get that. I just kind of ignored this scene, so. Okay, so Melody goes down to the mailboxes to check the 4G mailbox, but then a man catches her trying to pull a letter from it that's kind of like half sticking in and out. Yeah, it's the guy who opened the door for her when she first got here, and also the guy who cornered her in the stairwell in the end video of the last episode. Which means these tapes are out of order. In case that wasn't already clear. Or, for some reason, she uh, she had to use her first tape to record something at the very end. Oh, that's a fair point, too. Anyways, the man is like, you know, that's a $2,000 fine trying to steal somebody else's mill. And she's like, oh, no, that's not what I was doing. He's like, I don't, I don't actually give a fuck. I was just giving you a hard time. And then he uses the opportunity of making her feel uncomfortable and trapped. To invite her to tomorrow's opera at the sanctuary. I thought it was tonight. Tomorrow. Oh, Tamara, the person. Yeah, that's why I said Tamara's opera at the sanctuary. Yeah, I, I understood you said Tamara. I don't say Tamara when I say tomorrow. I know. I thought it was weird. I'm not saying I didn't. I'm just saying it's like 7.30 Anyways, in the morning. Anyways, Melody agrees. And then we see her in her apartment looking at a mirror, getting ready. And then she gets a message on her answer machine. She's not playing a message. Her phone rings. Okay, yeah. She gets a message on her answer machine. She doesn't answer it. It's from Dan's father, Dr. Turner. It's Dr. Stephen Turner. Yes. And he tells her he got the phone number for her new apartment, apartment from her, her roommate. roommate, Annabelle. She curses Annabelle at this point. She's mm-hmm. like, damn it, Annabelle, what did you do? And she's like, I just want to check in, see how you're doing. I know we didn't end on good terms, but I think we were making good progress. Yes, yeah, so she very much feels like a former patient. She seems annoyed and pissed off and she immediately deletes the message yep dan then runs back to his forest spot to try and call mark mm-hmm. but while he's out in the woods he finds a dilapidated building of some sort it kind of looks like a barn well we slowed down in the forest for a bit like when he first got out there and i might be wrong but it looked like the tree from before because it had like this one branch that hang down lower than the other branches around it mm-hmm. but it didn't seem to have the hoodie string around it which would make sense because the person in the hoodie that was watching him mm-hmm. and then he sees a building it looks dilapidated from far away but when you get up close it just looks like some vines grown on it other than that it's like the concrete building, with a steel door well the building still looks dilapidated because it's got like wood paneling that's like really like worn out i don't think there was wood paneling on it maybe not the only thing that looked new on it was the doors like the doors were like solid metal 
And then he finds a ladder and uses it to climb on top of the roof of this building so he can get signal with his phone. Yeah, he gets signal. He's happy about it. And he calls who? Mark. Mark, obviously. Dan tells Mark that Melody did, in fact, know his father. And then tells Mark to check the patient files because it seems like she was a patient of his. Mm-hmm. Up on the ladder, though, after he gets off the phone with Mark... He sees the person in the red coat. Who has been spying on him. He climbs on the ladder and chases this person, but just finds himself at the chain link fence again. Yeah, he, he loses them. So back in the building... He calls for Virgil Davenport. At LMG's mm-hmm. office. And all he gets is, assumingly, his assistant or secretary, and she's just like... The same woman that was probably told to get the... Um, yeah. Arnold Palmer. And, and she's just like, Mr. Davenport's in the field right now. Is this a uh, physical or mental emergency? Are you in mental distress? He, she doesn't say physical. She specifically like, uh, she only mentions mental. Are you under mental distress? Is this a mental emergency? Yeah, he's like, no, I saw a guy. So she again reiterates, are you in mental distress? He's like, no. Look, just have him call me back. It's important. Is that the message? No. It's just important. Have him call me. Yeah, and then he nope. hangs up. Yeah, so I, I feel like she was like told by Davenport, hey, if Dan calls, just insinuate that he's mentally unwell. Yeah, so then he's feeding Ratty a piece of pizza on the pool table. And he's looking through board games, and he's like, you know, for all I know... LMG uh, could be a uh, board game conglomerate. And they could be making a really fucked up board game about the Visor apartment building fire. Restore tape, move six spaces. And then he's looking through the living area, and he comes across some VHS tapes, and specifically the... Exact NIM tape. That Melody found in the pharmacy earlier. So he tells Reddy, oh, I got a movie that you'll love, and he puts it on, and then he's getting on nice and cozy on the couch. And falls asleep. He seems to be nodding off. Yeah, he he seems to be half asleep. And then he sees the guy in... The red hoodie again. Just past the TV. But now they have the hoodie down, and we can see that it's Steven, Mm -hmm. Dan's dad. dad. And then Steven says something, but we can't hear him. Yeah, so Dan calls out to him. And he gets up and he follows him. And then leads him down a long hallway and then through another hallway. And we Mm -hmm. can start to hear chanting, similar to what we heard, what Melody heard in her apartment. And the hallway chains from the brutalist concrete walls of this place he's in to looking more and more like the Vizier hallways. And And then then they just are the Vizier apartment complex hallways. And then he sees a person use a key to enter a door labeled 2D. Mm -hmm. And when he goes up to the door and knocks, a woman's voice goes, who's there? And the door opens. Melody answers the door. And then Dan wakes up on the couch. This is such a good dream sequence. Like, goddamn. Mm-hmm. If every dream sequence in every movie was this good, like, fuck. Dude, you know how good Inception would have been if its dreams were actually, like, dreams? Yeah. So Dan wakes up, and he pops some pills, and then he goes back to the tapes. Yep. He then starts watching another tape. Melody is at the sanctuary for tomorrow's show. And before the show, she runs into Tamara at the bar. And she's like, oh, hey, yeah, Samuel invited me. And Tamara kind of just, like, brushes her off and walks off. She also, like, she seems slightly weirded out that she's even there at first. Yep. So then Melody orders a beer, Budweiser, I think. Yeah. And then immediately runs into Samuel. And he's like, oh, you brought your camera. Yep. They then proceed to watch act one of Purgatory. Mm-hmm. The performance starts and most of the people are in white robes with the masks on. But there's one person in a red robe with the white mask on. Yeah. Which would be very similar to satanic rituals in early days of Satanism. Or, uh, or racist rituals right now. Oh, fair points too. Mm-hmm. And actually, satanic rituals, it's a single red rope and then black robes. Yeah, but these people mm-hmm. were wearing white robes, right? 
Yep. Yeah. The music once again causes a visceral reaction for Melody and Samuel. Mm-hmm. And well, for Melody. Yeah. Sorry. And Sam notices he's just like, oh, let's get out of here. We'll just go to the bar. Yep. And at the bar, she's attempting to guess what he does for a living. Yeah. And she guesses something like Norwegian, folk, something or other. And he's like, oh, actually, that's very close. I'm a Renaissance and Medieval Studies teacher at Columbia. Yes. And I don't have tenure yet. So I do some translating on the side, you know. I translate but... poetry from French to English on the side, you know. He then asks her about her camera, and we find out that it was a gift from Melody's mother for a college graduation. We also learn that he lives on the top floor. The visser. Yeah, he building. lives in the he lives in the penthouse. And he's like, don't call it a penthouse. But we we find out that Melody's mother was a documentarian. Mm-hmm. A documenter. A document. I think it's documentarian is the right word. Mm-hmm. My phone says it's not spelled right, but and. She got the camera from her mom, and then they're kind of just talking for a bit, and she asks him about the sex cult. Well, we find out her mom's dead, too. Oh, yeah, her mom's dead. Yep. So, yeah, and Melody's like, yeah, so I heard this interesting rumor about a sex cult that meets in the community room. And And he's like, from Beatrice, she's probably thinking about the Vizier Historic Society. And she's like, oh, shit, you have a historical society? The exact thing that would make my job, like, the fucking easiest? And he's like, yeah, it's been around for, like, five years now. And he's like, yeah, the last meeting was actually about Dutch witchcraft, which... Apparently I, lasted to the uh, early 20th century. At least as far south as Manhattan. And she's like, oh, really? And then, unprompted out of nowhere, because she hasn't said anything to him about this, he's like, in fact, the society might have some knowledge about Julia Bennett. Yeah, first he mentions that they might do an interview for him, and then he's like, also someone might know about uh, Julia, and she's just weirded out, because yeah, she never yep. mentioned it. So they get back to Visser, and he gives her the skeleton key his nephew gave him. He mentioned this earlier when, when she the was mailbox to thing, the mailbox. Yeah. It yeah. just wasn't important. Yeah. They kiss, he mentions, hey, you want red or white wine for a nightcap, I'll go grab something. She's like, whiskey, I'm yeah. not a fucking bitch, give me whiskey. he goes red or white, and she's like, what do you mean? He's like, for a nightcap. She's like, yeah. oh, whiskey. whiskey. Uh, he goes to the store, she takes the time to check the 4G mailbox again. All the mail is gone, and then Jess shows up behind her, startling her. And says, no one lives in that apartment, at least, at least not as long as I've been alive. Yeah, so which, 14 years. Yeah, and Melody's like, uh, what happened to the mail that was there earlier then? And Jess is just like, John probably threw it out, he hates messes. And then she's like, oh yeah, by the way, somebody was like banging on all the apartment doors looking for you earlier. Buzzing and, things. And we're kind of like, led to believe it's yeah. Stephen. She's like, John was going to have them arrested, but like, you know. I let her into your apartment instead. Mm-hmm. And when she gets up into her room, there's Annabelle, her old roommate. And Melody's like, dude, why the fuck did you give Turner my number? Yeah, and she's like... He's your therapist? Yeah, and she's like, I've missed you. Also, he's your therapist. Also, why does it matter? Are you hiding from him? Were you guys having an affair? Do you have his baby? Is that why you're hooking up with hot guy down there? To check him into having your baby with him? Honestly, I dislike Annabelle in this interaction. She's just annoying because she continues this. Yeah, Annabelle's too annoying far. until her next scene. Not, not, not her next scene. This next, next scene. Mm-hmm. Next, 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 next scene. Her last scene of this episode. Yeah. And so then Sam shows up with the whiskey. Just in time to hear Annabelle going off on like this idea of yeah. Melody and, uh, using him to hide her love So. Baby. He's just like, never mind about the nightcap. We can do that later. He sets the whiskey down and dips. Yep. So Anna's just like, cool whiskey, and tells Mel that she's going to knock her walls down yeah, so all her secrets spill out. You're all of your secrets, secrets, secrets that you have. Yep. And the video ends then. And Dan goes out to the kitchen and Where... finds torn paper everywhere. And he's like, damn it, Ratty. This is enough paper nesting to like fucking make a nest out of the Fortress of Solitude. Yeah. So he goes into the pantry to grab a broom. When he grabs the broom, he kind of hits the wall and it sounds hollow. Yeah. So he starts knocking on the walls they all sound hollow and false in the pantry so he pulls all the stuff out of the pantry off the shelves and finds knocks a down the back wall and knocks down the wall a wrench it's a wrench it's a oh, red it's a wrench, my bad, wrench yeah. pipe and the walls are false they lead to a hallway mm-hmm. which has 
staircases and light switches and a door that has a key card thing but won't open. Yeah, it leads downstairs, so he tries the light switch, doesn't do anything, but there is one light at the far end of the hall that's on. And he continues going down the hallways, trying doors, trying to light switches, mm-hmm. and then he finds a door that actually opens, and this leads into like a giant altar cathedral thing. Yeah. Of the rooms that he passes, he passes numerous empty rooms. He also passes some, like, offices mm-hmm. that look like they're filled with hundreds of files and VHS tapes. And they ends up in, like, an abandoned chapel with, like, pews pushed up against a wall. Well, it's an abandoned chapel with pews and hymnals. He picks up a yeah. hymnal and flips through it. And he's looking at a pew and it has initials carved in it. The letters TB, a plus sign, and AF. the letters AF. Yeah. Which doesn't match up with anybody as far as we know so far. Yeah, no. The only A we have at the moment is Annabelle. Mm-hmm. And TB doesn't match with anybody. The only thing we have TB-wise is uh, nothing. I was going to say Tamara, but her last name is not with a B. Yeah. Davenport then comes out of nowhere and is like, I didn't know you were religious, Dan. And yeah, Dan's um, like, he's actually holding the ranch that Dan used to break in yep. the wall in with. And Dan's like, what is this place? And then instead of giving an answer, Davenport just gives a lecture about religion. He's like, my family was never particularly extremely religious. You know, do you ever, do you ever do debate club? Because uh, I, I, it's basically, I just took a stance once in a debate that uh, Jesus was a demon, which that, that got me expelled from school. It wasn't just that Jesus was a demon. It was that Jesus being crucified was the best thing that could have happened because Jesus was a demon. It was going to destroy all of humanity. Yeah, and that uh, that got me expelled from school. And Dan's just like, that doesn't seem like it held you back, anything. And then Devonport's like, I should fire you. And Dan's like, mm, you shouldn't because you know my dad's on those tapes and that's why you hired me in the first place. Yeah, so Virgil invites Dan to follow him. They're going back down the hallways. Yeah, he turns to start walking down the hallway and goes, follow me. And he's like, don't worry, this time you're invited. Yeah, and he explains to Dan that he had a nice little company that he started up called Weldspring. He considered it a wonderful gift to let people know where they came from. And he started in 2006. Yeah. But he but had to close it down because police agencies were trying to get the DNA data, and he's like... He didn't like that. He's all about privacy, you know? Yeah, so he enters the room that Dan tried to enter earlier. Because his key card gives him access. Mm-hmm. And Virgil explains to Dan that uh, he didn't actually realize that Dan's father was on the tapes or that he was even recently involved. He kind of had suspicions, but he didn't know for sure. Yeah. In fact, Davenport also reveals to Dan that his father may have been responsible for his house burning down. Yeah. He's just like, look, man, if you want to back out, Dan, like here, if things are getting too intense, feel free to do it. You can back out now. No problems. Your dad's involved. I didn't know that was going to happen. I had some suspicions, maybe tangentially. But, uh, you know, there's the chance that the police were suspecting that maybe your father burned down the place because he was on temporary leave and then... He University. Had been suspended, yeah. They were looking into him for something. They extended that when the house burned down, but like that was a thing happening at the time. Yep. And then Davenport tells him that going forward, these files, the halls, the altar room, all of this is off limits. Mm-hmm. And he, then he's like, but you aren't trapped here. I know you don't have a car, but there should be bikes around. There's a town 14 miles south of here. If mm-hmm. you know how to ride a bike, it's a great cup of coffee if you're willing to make the trip. Yeah, they are uh, outside of the building at this point, have this yeah. conversation. And then he mentions to Danny's like, you know, we have a lot in common, don't we? We both like putting things together. We like puzzles. Solving mysteries. We we could have made board games in another life. We could have been good at inventing board games. And then, then he dips. Yep. After the conversation with Davenport, Dan dives right at the next tape, which picks up with Melody asking Annabelle if she hears the chanting and music that Melody hears. Because she again hears the music when she wakes up in the night, goes to check the vent. 
Annabelle doesn't wake up. So Melody wanders down the hall. Looking for the source of the sound herself. Down the stairwell. Ends up outside the community room. Where she can much more clearly hear a woman chanting in another language. Yeah, and she appears into like a little closet area that's like partially partitioned off from the community room. Yep, and she looks through a crack in the door with the camera and records what seems to be the majority of the Visser community that we've Mm -hmm. seen at this point, except maybe Beatrice and Jess humming and chanting to some kind of altar with some type of crouching humanoid demonic figure statue on it they're humming talking in tongues and then at one point they all start panting Panting, rhythmically like panting hard enough to physically move their bodies and then they have an exhaled sigh of relief and the lights come up and then dan gets up he's the first one up then miss wall not dan not not dan sorry sam gets up Closes the cupboard with the demonic figure. <laughs> then Miss Wall gets up. And, and everyone then, proceeds to like talk and like just it's like so, a, socialize normally. Yeah, like casually converse. Should and then they noted leave. that the cupboard that Samuel closed has the same pentagram-esque symbol as mm-hmm. the front of the building. So they all leave and then Melody enters the room to look around. She looks at the MR. She tries to open it, but can't get it open. And then she hides because Samuel and Tamara come back into the room. Mm-hmm. Sam has a little furniture moving frame with the wheels on it. And then Sam and Tamara have very loud animal sex. Yes. As they do the volume spike, we get the whole piercing screechy thing again. Dan covers his ears. Then he resumes the tape, rewinds it, resumes the tape. Samuel and Tamara finish. They leave. That, and eventually, Melody makes her way back to her apartment where she finally wakes Annabelle up by entering mm-hmm. the apartment. And Annabelle's like, oh, it's four something in the morning. Where have you been? Did you end up hooking up with that guy after all? And Melody's like, nah, there's some weird like satanic stuff going on. And Annabelle's just like oh so we should leave yeah but, but melody's like look i can't this is about my mother and and, and was like your, your mom died like lila she was cool but like she she, cool she'd make doing something other than documentary documentaries yeah. and melody's like it's about my birth mother which apparently annabelle knows about they're aware that she's adopted and i was just like i thought you didn't know anything about her and melody's like i was notified that my birth mother was like looking into me her name was julia bennett i got this piece of mail from her and she had a return address here the letter says that julia wanted nothing to do with her but she's just vanished nobody knows where she yeah. is just and I, to... I need a i need to know about her for my own sake and this is where annabelle goes from being a piece of shit to actually being a good friend she's like look i'll do whatever it takes to help you figure this out yeah. then we'll stay and the video ends and in the rec room of the facility dan plays part of the song no what so annabelle says they're oh, yeah, sorry, there was and then there's the a door. knock on the door and annabelle's just like we can't mm. see the actual door because she leaves the camera sitting on the table she opens the door she closes the door she comes back and she's like there was no one there well first up annabelle's like don't do that and we're back to the video as a video mm-hmm. and and she does set it down to where we can see her at the door. Yeah, but we can't see. So we can't see through the door because she's blocking it. But she opens the door and she says the exact line with, yeah, for when Dan knocked said... on his dream. And in fact, we flash back to where Dan sees himself knock on the door. Yeah. And then we end the tape there. Yep. In the rec room of the facility, Dan plays part of the song from the community room that the people were chanting mm-hmm. and playing. And it's we the cut same to the people song. humming it, yeah. His dad yelled at him about playing mm-hmm. when he was, the day his house burned down. Dan then takes a bike, mm-hmm. heads to the town 14 miles south where he meets Mark, tells Mark that the song that he was playing in the Visor community room is the same one that his sister used to play on the piano, which is the same one that he was playing the day that his house burned down. And Mark's just like, is it like a folk song? Is that where your sister heard it? And Dan's like, all I can tell you is something Colego. It has something to do with Colego. Yeah. And Mark's just like, that's weird. Maybe you should search downstairs again. Dan's just like, nah, Davenport definitely has that place wired. I guarantee if I open up the walls, there'd be a camera in every room. Yep. He's essentially like, look, if I do that, I'm going to get fired. And then we're back to where the whole no job, fired, no money. Yeah. So Dan's like, what do you know about LMG? And did you bring the stuff I asked for? So Mark hands him a bag. We never see in it. He's just looking through it. So he gets something. Yep. And then Mark tells him that LMG, which we finally learn what it stands for. Legacy 
Privacy Management Global. It's just the tip of an iceberg or a Russian nesting doll, also known as a Matryoshka doll. It, and tied to everything. A yeah, little they're bit in of everything. real estate, defense, pharmaceuticals, synthetic gemstones. But he but, couldn't find anything about Wellspring. Yeah. So it's probably a subsidiary of a subsidiary of a subsidiary. And then Marcus says, also, I couldn't find any files for Melody at your aunt's place, but I did find some tapes. Because your dad recorded all of his sessions. So I brought all mm-hmm. the ones labeled M. Pendras. Here they are. And Dan's just like, I, I need to know if she like knew my father or anything specific about it. And Marcus just like, well, you could ask her yourself. She's alive and well in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She didn't die in the fire. Maybe she can help you understand what your father was doing there yep and that's the end of the episode which really dan did not do any research like yeah, he says but, uh, he did but he did not fun fact if you don't remember from the very beginning the uh visser welding company is in pennsylvania yep i doubt it will have any connection going forward but hey it's a nice little tie-in i mean all of these things have like slight tangential connections like the pdf one one of the one of the melody perennis that we see or it gets mentioned died in like 1924 1923 which is when the first one in the short story there was born it was it was different 1920 years we also the the closest one is the uh, Visir Fire Department police chief and then the Visir yeah. Apartment complex burning down. Anyways, what did you think of episode two? Still dense as fuck. Not as dense, luckily. Still good. Intriguing. I don't know if, I, if I'm super interested in what's going on here, but I'd definitely watch more of it. I just, I don't know how invested I am in the mystery of it, but I am very interested in the way it tells its story. Like, they do a really good job with the audio and the way the visuals are tied to it like i like how as things build and get more and more off we cut back to the actual recorded footage when we're doing that yeah 100 percent. i think i'm more interested in like the mystery of the show and like whether there's paranormal shit going on or if it's all psychosis and like evil corporations i get that but yeah i'm down to watch more it's only eight episodes for this first season so already a quarter of the way through it yeah but yeah that was Archive 81, a new Netflix original series. Yeah, and if you want to find our archive of past episodes, you can find them on copilotsreview.simplecast.com. Which also has the links to our Twitter, which is at copilotsreview, our Gmail, which is copilotsreview at gmail.com. Or a link to our Discord, where you can talk to other people. Talk about shows. Upload your own videotapes of a mysterious fire that, that you have records of. Everyone has one of those, right? Yeah, 100%. In fact, that's what Blumeny Schnicket wrote his books about. Yeah. Anyways, though, thank you for flying with us, and please fly again soon. Mm-hmm.